Okay, so Dr. Akhtar, just to begin, how would you describe the general sentiment and assumptions surrounding palliative care in the U.S. among A, oncology patients, and then B, their caregivers? I'm going to give you an example, actually, because I'm, I just finished talking to a patient and her two really nice daughters. And this is a classical discussion which uh, all the palliative care physicians or end-of-life care teams are having uh, throughout the country. This is a patient without uh, going into, uh, into the details of her cancer, but she's got a type of a cancer which is terminal. She's not getting any anti-cancer treatment. She is uh, getting blood and platelet transfusions on a regular basis. Uh, so she came to the hospital for a variety of reasons, but uh, I just got involved uh, yesterday and I talked to her. It looks like she's getting weaker. So I asked her, what does she want to do? She told me that she wants to go home. When I talked to the social workers, it looked like she lives alone. She's got two really uh, great caring daughters who will take care of her at home. But before I would send her home, I arranged a mat meeting with uh, the two daughters and the patient. And uh, we started talking about uh, you know, what will be a good, safe way for her to go home. And during the discussion, we started talking about different services which we can involve. And one of the services which uh, I talked to them about was palliative care. And uh, one of the daughters stopped me and she says, we want her to get all of her normal medications like her heart medications and blood pressure medications. And we want her to continue to get the blood transfusion. And here lies the main hurdle. The main hurdle is that there is so much misinformation about palliative care that uh, a lot of patients and their families and caregivers uh, would not even entertain the idea of involving uh, a service like that. So when I uh, got done describing to them what actually the role of palliative care is and that the patients can still continue to get uh, medications and transfusion because it's helping them. And uh, of course, uh, in other patients who are on even curative treatment, uh, they can continue to get the curative treatment and we can help them go through the treatment, supporting them uh, for, for their uh, side effects and complications. So at the end of the discussion, after I would say 35 minutes, they got up and they hugged me and they said that our decision is that we will involve the palliative care service. So that's hurdle number one, which is at the level of the patient. And very briefly, the other major hurdle which we face is at the level of physicians. And again, there also lack of awareness, lack of education about what we really do becomes a major hurdle because there, there are physicians who would not consider palliative care 
in the care of their uh, patients, although it's changing. But these are the two main hurdles. And then the third hurdle is financial because of the reimbursement model from the insurance companies. It's, uh, it, 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 it's uh, difficult to uh, run a palliative care service, which is fiscally responsible. You know, from what I'm hearing you describe, especially in this in this example that you've given of this this patient you have who's who's terminally ill with their cancer, the main hurdle or, or stigma that uh, I, I think you basically described in a microcosm through this one patient is that patients often believe that palliative care simply means halting their their therapy, you know, as they know it or as they should be receiving it, um, and instead submitting themselves to end-of-life care and a, a totally unique uh, hurdle on the caregiver side is the just a general lack of awareness and education as well as the financial uh, barriers there as well so my question is what are some of the steps that can be taken to get rid of this stigma and specifically what are some unique methods that you have employed at MHP in an effort to do so there are two things which we need to do Number one, we need to change the whole philosophical discussion. And I'm going to give you an example of cancer treatments. Once someone is diagnosed with cancer, then we as a system and as a society tell them to fight it, to start a war. In effect, treatment of cancer is really not treatment at all, it's, it's a fight, it's a war. And then while we fight the war, we, are, we get so focused and consumed on just a small part of patient's body that we start to ignore the rest of the body. So I, in my opinion, this whole discussion needs to shift from starting a war to taking care of the patients holistically. So you take care of the cancers and you also take care of the entire patient. If that's the case, once the, the cancer stops to respond, it's not giving up. It's just still we continue to take care of the patients and the body holistically. We just change the direction. I think if we do that, the 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 patients and their families will have an easier time transitioning from one step of the treatment to the other stage of the treatment. So that, I think, needs to happen on a nationwide level. On a much more MHP level, what we have done is that we have taken our oncology division and we we had a few physicians who are board certified in palliative care and hospice. We created a small subcommittee, which we call the palliative care and end of life care subcommittee. The role of these physicians is to become the champions for palliative care and end of life care. And what we have done is to come up with a, a comprehensive awareness and education program, which is 
on an ongoing basis we are doing. So debts at the level of physicians, at the level of the patients, I think, you know, what we are doing right now, making patients aware of what palliative care actually is, trying to create awareness. And when we have patients sitting down with them and their caregivers, uh, one is to one, as I just did, and trying to give them the true understanding uh, of what we do and, and telling them what they hear, what they uh, uh, read is not necessarily true all the time. I do want to note before we, before we move on with the rest of the episode that these ideas that you brought up on the, on the national level of, of bringing the language of palliative care and, and treating cancer in the patient, moving it away from these war analogies, these ideas can be viewed in a written form in a blog that Dr. Akhtar wrote with us very recently titled Achieving Victory Through Holistic Palliative Care. And this can be viewed on the journal clinicalpathways.com website. Anyway, Dr. Akhtar, I, I, I was also hoping you could speak to how this palliative care program that you just described was a direct attempt to meet OCM quality standards at MHP. What CMS uh, is trying to do through OCM is to improve the coordination of care resulting in high-quality, cost-effective care. What we have done is to create a program of palliative care and end-of-life care. Our program started in, in the end of 2017, and that was as a direct result of uh, uh, the data which CMS shared with us. And as a group, MH, we will not doing well when it comes to uh, involving palliative care and end-of-life care. So when we started the program, we looked at where the holes are. So we know that in our health system, there are good inpatient palliative care programs. Where we were missing was in the community. What we did is to create a community-based program. The uniqueness of our program is that it is a nurse practitioner uh, run and it is physician-led program. We have a multidisciplinary team which takes these patients at home and in the nursing homes. And then we coordinate the care with the primary oncologist and our multidisciplinary team and then we have a technology partner in Integra Connect through which we are constantly able to analyze our data. We just presented two abstracts, one on palliative care, where we showed that we have uh, improved the quality by increasing the number of patients who, when they go into hospice, they at least spend more than three days under hospice. So one of the uh, OCM quality measures called OCM3 is exactly that. And our target was that 
60% of our patients should spend more than three days in the hospice. And because of our program, 77% of our patients fulfilled the, the OCM3 criteria uh, as compared to uh, patients who declined or uh, did, were not referred for palliative care, there the number is really small. So that was on the quality side. Then we also showed that the cost in the last 30 days of patient's life with palliative care went down by more than 35%. The third thing was the site of care. We saw that if the palliative care is involved, patients are spending less time in nursing homes and inpatient facilities and spending more time at home and under hospice. And if you'd like to read more about this, this research, this study that was presented at ASCO, uh, we have a joint interview published on the journal clinicalpathways.com titled Examining the Impact of a Palliative Care Program at a Large OCM Community Practice. This was a joint interview with Dr. Akhtar and Dr. Charles Saunders of Integra Connect. Now, Dr. Akhtar, it was shown in your research that MHP had provided palliative care in this program for, I believe it was 409 patients through March of this year. Uh, and as more and more patients continued to be enrolled in, enrolled in this program, uh, probably even more patients since that March cutoff time and, and even going into the future, what data trends do you anticipate seeing? Now we are looking into the last six months prior to patients either entering hospital service or prior to uh, patients' uh, expiration. And we are seeing the same trends. I think the trend, if you look at it, is that patients are spending more time at homes and less time in inpatient facilities from a quality perspective. Again, uh, the length of stay under hospice will hopefully continue to rise as uh, the uh, primary oncologists are referring patients earlier and earlier after diagnosis of cancer. The other thing which I'm uh, starting to do is to look into where the main opportunity lies. So I'm looking, starting to look, look into the effect of palliative care and end-of-life care programs when it comes to different cancer types. We'll see some trends there too. By any chance, would you be willing to provide a sneak peek as to what your initial data suggests in regard to specific cancer types? Is there a cancer type that the initial data shows seems to benefit more or most from this program? Or how does the data have the potential to convince more patients with specific diseases to enroll in the program? I just actually submitted two abstracts to the ASCO supportive care meeting later this year, actually last night. So it's really interesting. So I'll give you two things. One is that if you look at all the cancer types, three cancer types stand out. Lung cancer advanced stage, advanced stage pancreatic cancer, and advanced stage colorectal cancers. 
what we've seen is that the site of care is less and less in the inpatient facility and nursing homes. And I think the reason why I wanted to look into the cancer type was to see where the majority of the opportunity lies. Because if we have to put our resources, I think we need to put our resources in a data-driven fashion. So you will see this abstract hopefully in October. And uh, based on our data, then we will have further discussion within the group MHP to see if, if, if that's where we want to put our resources. The other thing which I did this time is to look at the use of uh, uh, pain medications or narcotic pain medications. And what we did is that we have converted all the narcotics to morphine dose equivalents and then plotted them on a graph based on milligrams per patient per month. And what we have seen is that patients who are under the care of uh, uh, the oncology division, they get started on a dose of, uh, uh, of narcotics, and then there's very little variation in the dose, meaning that once the patients are started on pain medication, either there is no variation in the pain or we are not doing a good job of evaluating and changing the dose. Up until the time when a subgroup of patients, we see wide variation in the narcotic dose. These are the patients who are then eventually referred to palliative care. And when the palliative care team comes, the variation goes down gradually and then the dose stabilizes. And when we looked at the possible causes, what we saw is that the use of long-acting narcotics like fentanyl is minimal in the absence of palliative care. Once the palliative care comes on board, the long-acting narcotic use goes uh, significantly up and also the dose of short-acting breakthrough medication goes up too. This is the kind of research we are starting to do. Uh, Dr. Akhtar, you know, before we, before we close up shop here in about a minute or so, do you have any important points or closing messages you'd like to just quickly make at this time? I cannot emphasize more the importance of changing the philosophical discussion from starting a war against cancer to taking care of the cancer patient holistically. I think we need to change the discussion and we need to educate both the physicians as well as the patients. I, I think if we are successful in doing that, we should be able to help more patients than what we are doing right now. It's a very interesting conversation and it's one that's being had throughout the community and especially on our website. As I mentioned before, I'll reiterate, please check out the, the blog that Dr. Akhtar wrote, Achieving Victory Through Holistic Palliative Care. 
uh, really lays out these these ideas here that he's that he's bringing forth right here at the end of our interview. So with that, uh, Dr. Akhtar, we're out of time, and I'm really grateful that you were able to sit down this afternoon and speak with us. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much, Zach.